Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're talking all about data-driven decision-making and how you should think about data in startups and early-stage products versus scaled products. We're joined by Bethany Lyons, who's the Chief Product Officer at Kawa Analytics. Kawa Analytics is a data analytics and operational intelligence platform, which helps its clients make data-driven decisions and provide access to key insights. Bethany has a wealth of experience and expertise in product and data analytics and different size companies. Previously, she worked at a Series B scale-up, Muse, and was at Tableau before that, from when it was just an unknown startup all the way through its enterprise phase. But before we get into it with Bethany, it's time for our Dear Melissa segment. This is where I answer all of the questions that you send to me at dearmelissa.com. So this week, we've got a question that is very timely for what we're going to be talking about with Bethany about how do we think about data in startups? So here's the question. Dear Melissa, I have an early stage startup and I'm the only person on the product and design side. I'm super stretched thin already and we don't have a huge user base yet, but I know I need to gather data to drive my decisions. So I'm wondering if you have any advice on what information is the most important to gather at this stage and how best to go about it. So one of the key things I think about startups and early stage products is that you're not going to have a ton of data to help you with data-driven decision-making. You're gonna need data that comes directly from customers, which is usually in a qualitative form. So we've got two different types of data. We've got qualitative data and we've got quantitative data. When you launch a company, you don't usually have critical mass. And the best way for you to learn is actually to go out there and talk to your customers. So that's something that you should be doing there, especially on the product and design side. So you wanna make sure that you're laying the infrastructure to capture that quantity of data so that once you still get more and more people on there, you can go back and make a great analysis. But right now, I think you should shift your focus really to qualitative data, understanding your customers, understanding their pain points, seeing what they're using, keeping on top of that. So in early stage companies, I think about instrumenting it for scale so that once we get to the point where we have tons of people on here, we can actually make quick decisions. We can do cohort analysis. We can start to look at how people are using our platforms. We can look at adoption and user analytics and all that fun stuff at scale. But in early stages, you're going to be making most of your decisions based on that qualitative feedback. You're going to draw some quantitative parallels with it, right? You're going to go out, talk to a bunch of customers and say, hey, like seven out of 10 people are doing X, Y, and Z. That's what I'm going to base my decisions off of right now and go forward from that. But it's going to be really hard to use user analytics at scale at these stages. And that's okay. That's what happens in early stage companies. You'll catch up there. Other things that you might want to be looking at too are data about like market sizes, competition, trying to get some of that in there to help you really steer for where you want to concentrate as you think about building this business. But again, early stage, you're going to have very limited quantitative data to go off of. And while it still might be useful to look at it, see if you can actually follow users' journeys through all of these analytics tools it's gonna be really hard to base all of your decision off that immediately. So really 
stay in touch with your customers, focus on that qualitative information, and then focus on instrumenting it for scale. That's the key to making sure that you can make data-driven decisions as you keep going forward. So that's it for Dear Melissa this week. If you have a question for me, please write it in to dearmelissa.com. I answer a question every single episode, and I love to hear what you're thinking about. And before we dive into talking to Bethany, I want to just let you know as well that our new book that Denise Tillis and I have written on product operations is now live on Amazon. We are working to put it out there on different distributors, waiting for it to propagate to all of your different bookstores. But if you go to Amazon right now in any country, you should be able to order the paperback or the Kindle version and start reading all about product operations. So I hope you enjoy the book and we would love to hear your feedback on that. Now we're going to dive into talking to Bethany. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. Hello, and welcome to the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're joined by Bethany Lyons, who is the Chief Product Officer of Kawa Analytics. Kawa Analytics is a data analytics and operational intelligence platform, which helps its clients make data-driven decisions and provide access to key insights. Bethany has a wealth of experience and expertise in product and data analytics and different size companies. Previously, she worked at a Series B scale at Muse, and before that, she was at Tableau from when it was an unknown startup all the way through its enterprise phase. Welcome, Bethany. Thank you. Really delighted to be on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you get into product management? And specifically, how did you end up working at all these amazing data analytics places? Definitely. So how I got into product management was through unrelenting persistence. If you want to move into product management, it's always a lot easier to transition in an existing company than to try to get a new company who you have no reputation with to hire you into an entirely new career. So I've been in London for my whole career in the UK. And Tableau was obviously a West Coast, kind of Seattle-based company. And so the thousands of people in Tableau's R&D team were in the US and they had a no hiring people outside the US policy for product management. So I had a pretty big barrier <laughs> in place there. But I didn't care. I was like, I'm going to work on the product, like whether I'm allowed to or not. So I went out and brought like one of Tableau's best product managers on this like cross European trip to about 30 different customers who all had like the same problem. And then we wrote this pitch for why we should invest in data modeling in Tableau. It got approved for funding by Adam Solipsky. They staffed the project with like 100 people. And then Roger quit. He was the PM I was working with on this. And the project was then left without a leader. And so then there was a crisis of like, oh, no, we've just like funded this huge initiative. And like our key champion is gone. Bethany, do you want to step in and now take over because you're one of the only people with context about this problem since I'd been working on it before. So that was how I got into product management. They ended up like over making an exception to their policy of like requiring people to be US based. A bit of luck, a bit of skill, <laughs> being in the right place at the right time. And then, yeah, to your second question about analytics, 
that was also like kind of you make your own luck. So I got actually the very first consultants in Europe at Tableau did the exact same master's program as I did at LSE, but just like a couple of years ahead. So he came recruiting in our pool of grads saying like, hey, we're hiring at Tableau. And I was like, I've never heard of this, but looked at the product, thought this looks great. Like my background was in operational research and math. So it was, I'm kind of like a quant nerd. So it seemed pretty aligned. And then, yeah, took him up on his offer and the rest is history. So with all of these different companies too that you've worked at, they've been a lot of different phases. Like you said, Tableau was early stage. Nobody really knew about it. And then it scaled. It's huge, right? Like when you left, how big was Tableau? Like, so the engineering side was about somewhere between three and 5,000. Like it was massive. Yeah, that's a massive company then. And when I joined, the entire company was only about 500 people. Definitely big changes there. What have you observed, you know, working from an enterprise perspective and then going into a startup? You were employee number 10 at Kawa, and then you were at a scale up. Like what's different about product management that you've observed between those different phases? Like absolutely everything. So in Tableau, it was all about stakeholder management and alignment, which is a fancy way of saying budget defense. Like, don't cut my project. <laughs> and so, yeah, providing constant evidence for why we should continue to fund this 100-person engineering effort was like so much of what I did at Tableau. Whereas in a small startup, there are no stakeholders to manage. There's only runway to manage. And so the job is totally different. It's how do we like protect and extend the runway of the business is like the number one kind of top of mind kind of existential question that I think about every single day, day in and day out. So when you were thinking about defending your budget at Tableau, what types of scenarios would you get into where they would want to cut it? Like, what was that like? What was that process? Like, so I think part of what made Tableau a complicated place is that when you have thousands of people working on one product, which is fairly unique, because I think in other companies, those thousands of people would be working on multiple product lines. We had thousands of people working on a single product. And so everybody wants to advance their part of the product. And so in a way, it creates a bit of a competitive culture of like, why should we solve this problem over this other problem? And you need to be able to defend what's going to deliver the highest value to the customer and ultimately to the business, like what's going to enable people to scale. So that was why. So you're coming into Kawa, you're now employee number 10. What's your day-to-day like that's different at Kawa than it was in the enterprise? Like, what are you more focused on, do you think, at the startup? So the number one question that I'm responsible for answering, as defined by me, (laughs) I wrote my own job description, is who is the customer? I think, like, the most important product decision that you ever make isn't anything to do with product. It's which customers do you onboard initially? Because they end up shaping your marketing. They shape your product vision. This whole idea of like, oh, you can just build whatever you want is is so not true. You have to build the product to solve the needs of the customers that you onboard. And so, so much of what I do is try to understand like different customers or prospects problems and see like, is solving that problem aligned to our vision? And if so, then... I probably want to onboard that customer. If not, I don't want them as a customer. 
And so what that means is I'm actually responsible for sales in our company. We don't have any salespeople. And it's because who is the customer is not something I'm willing to outsource as it's the biggest product decision we'll ever make. So when you're trying to figure out in these early stages too, who your customer is, what's your approach? Because if you're building something like an analytics platform, there could be many people. And, you know, Kawa, from what I understand, is for business users. So like you could go after any size company, any type of users within the business with the data. Like, how are you sifting through and trying to figure out which people are core and which people are target? Yeah, it's a great question. So what we look at is willingness to pay and urgency of the problem. I'll give you an example. In a hedge fund, the willingness to pay is extremely high because the day in and day out operations of like traders and portfolio managers is analyzing risk and analyzing their position. And they do that all today in like very manual ways and in Excel. Um, So we bring like scale and automation, collaboration, security, governance, like a whole bunch of things that they don't have today to their workflow to enable them to run their business in a much better way. So yeah, willingness to pay is super high and urgency is super high in a hedge fund. Then we have other people who are also like Excel users, but they're not using spreadsheets to do their job. They're using spreadsheets to measure things that are like tangential to their job. And so that use case is like kind of less interesting to us because it's like maybe once a month they run some numbers to check their performance. And it's kind of like, you know, you're not materially moving the needle on your outcomes. You're just like measuring them. So we're less interested in those use cases, which is why we invented this term operational intelligence to kind of narrow down like we want to be the analytics platform where like in the circumstances where data is being used in a very operational capacity, not just to like generate ad hoc insights. For like operational intelligence and using it in an operational way, what's different between that and ad hoc? Like how are your customers using your platform? Like an operational use case would be like a trader in a bank or a hedge fund. Like every single day they're using our tool to make decisions about investments. So that's like a very operational use case. It's driving the core decision making of their job. Whereas an ad hoc use case would be like, I want to make an argument to like get a raise. And so I'm going to prove that I've like hit some metric so I can tell this story to my manager about why they should give me a raise. That's like not really an operational use case. It's like an ad hoc use case where it's like maybe helpful to that person, but like we can't turn around and say like, at the end of the day, here's how we advanced your business. That makes sense. It's like, and it also sounds like the frequency, like the first use case with the hedge funds, they're using it every single day. It's like a core part of their workflow. Whereas the other ones, it's like, oh, let me go pull up that platform that we have that we forgot about that we're paying a subscription for. So those people probably aren't quite as sticky as the ones who use it. Exactly. 100%. So when you're in a startup environment too, the question I get asked a lot on this podcast is, I want to be a data-driven product manager. I want to do it right. I want to use all the analytics to inform my next decision. But 
I'm working in a startup. You know, we have no data yet. We just launched. We're still figuring it out. Or I launched a new product line inside a very large company or new feature inside a very large company. And I don't have the metrics. How do you make decisions in the absence of data then? So I view data like as it's applied to product management as an optimizer. It's like if I want to get a 1% improvement out of something, I'm going to use data to do that. But data is never going to tell you what to do. And if you're optimizing in a startup, you're like not on the right track at all. Like being in a startup is about pioneering, not about optimization. So like I'll just be blunt, like we just don't use data right now because there isn't any. We have to use like a vision and opinion that we have about the world and kind of our intuition of the problem space and like a ton of qualitative feedback. The data that we use is 100% qualitative. It's from interviews with people. It's like going out and trying to sell the product. If people don't want to buy it, don't force it. We're trying to find like, where's the pull and where are we pushing? And if we're pushing, then we just withdraw completely and say like, okay, that's just not something we should be doing. I really like this because I think I always advocate for people being data-driven product managers. But what I've seen in a lot of places is that People are waiting for data to just give them the answer. And like you said, it won't give you the answer, right? It's an optimizer thing. And I've seen both leaders and product managers who are junior kind of like say, oh, we don't have the data. I can't act, right? Like I can't make a decision. And it paralyzes them, right? And it makes the team not go anywhere. It makes them like not actually move. So I like kind of what you're saying here. On the catch side though, I wonder how do you balance making sure that you're doing the right thing, right? Measuring it (laughs) along the way and seeing that. And it sounds like in the early stages right now, you're using qualitative data, which is data, right? It's just not like things that we instrumented in our platform. It's qualitative data. You're using the qualitative data for feedback. How would you suggest people make sure that they're building the right thing along the way as they start scaling and measuring data? And how should they be looking at that to inform like what to do next or how they're progressing? Yeah, I would say you need to lay out the questions you want to answer before you instrument. Because I think like some people are like, let's just collect all the data we can possibly collect rather than approaching it with like a hypothesis driven mindset. So I would first come up with the hypotheses or like, what are the top 10 questions we need to answer about our product and then do the instrumentation of data? Because in some ways you then create accountability to come back and actually answer those questions when you do have a steady stream of data. And I've worked at companies that instrument everything. They're the least data-driven companies because they've never created questions to be accountable to. So I would say don't try to be data-driven. Try to be hypothesis-driven. And then like it's being data-driven is a consequence of that. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Be hypothesis-driven, actually know what questions. And I think that's a big part of actually being a good product manager is it's not about actually doing the analysis on the data. It's at picking the right questions to be asked and then oh, using a tool like Kawa or something to like help you figure out what the answers are. But I think people get that wrong. It's like it's not doing the analysis. It's about actually asking the right questions. Are you eager to dive into the world of angel investing? I was too, but I wasn't sure how to get started. I knew I could evaluate the early stage companies from a product standpoint, but I didn't know much about the financial side. This is why I joined Hustle Fund's Angel Squad. They don't just bring you opportunities to invest in early stage companies, they provide an entire education on how professional investors think about which companies to fund. 
Product leaders make fantastic angel investors. And if you're interested in joining me at Angel Squad, you can learn more at hustlefund.vc slash MP. Find the link in our show notes. So when you're looking at, you know, Kawa, you're in early stages right now, you're figuring out who your customers are. Are you thinking about data for scale? How are you thinking about measuring progress in an early stage companies? You're using the qualitative feedback right now. What are you doing though, as the chief product officer to make sure that you do hold yourself accountable, like you were saying, and going back and checking it and measuring progress and making sure you're on the right path? Like, what are you instrumenting now to do that later? So our, like one of our number one product priorities is to have like totally seamless onboarding. We don't want people to have to interact with us like as they're learning the product. So the moment we're doing a ton of screen shares with people to see like, what do they do like when they get started in the product? In the future, we're going to want to instrument like an event kind of collection to figure out what's the sequence of actions people are taking and how far does the path that they take deviate from our ideal path to get to kind of activation and like realization of that first value of product. So yeah, it'll be figuring out like data is just listening at scale. And right now we don't have a scale problem. So we're able to just like listen to individuals. But the first place that we're going to instrument data is definitely in the collection of events to track our onboarding experience. And the reason for that, just to clarify, is like the number one kind of product driver of revenue is the user activation. So the user reaching the point of value in your product. So that's the metric that we're going to optimize for. And we haven't yet defined what is an activation in our products. So that's another thing we need to think about. It's like, how do we know somebody's realized value? Like, is it when they group a view? Is it when they share a view? Is it when they build a dashboard? Is it, we're not sure. That's a big open question is what's the value realization point? I think that's a really hard question to answer. And I've seen people struggle with it too. What's your process for figuring out what that is? Like, what are you looking at? What's going to tell you like, yeah, this is it. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it'll be correlating user activity to account revenue. That's a hard data problem. And I think, again, we're still in the early stage of like defining our ICP. So it's not something we've tackled yet, but it will definitely be something that we'll be looking at in the future. So it's like, get all the people onto the platform, let them just go, let them use it. And then we're going to look at some lagging indicators later and just see how they correlate back to how people are using the platform. When you're trying to figure out to your core value proposition here, I guess in general too, and it could be for Kawa or somewhere else you've worked, but like, how do you know what's the core, right? And how do you make sure you're not getting distracted on building like a bunch of features and requests that people are asking for, right? I'm sure with the qualitative data you're getting right now, everybody's like, oh, it'd be cool if it could do this and it'd be cool if it could do that and all this stuff. How do you kind of sift through that noise and make sure that you don't stray from what's really going to provide that value? So we're fortunate at Kawa that we have like really strong agreements between myself, the, the CTO and the CEO as to what our core value proposition is. And our core value proposition is actually exactly the same as what Tableau's core value proposition is, just for a different persona, which is putting business logic in the hands of business users. So anything around like defining calculations, like turning a question into a computation, like that's our core value proposition. And something that would be adjacent to that is then like setting up a workflow trigger 
So that's like a place that we can, you know, explore expanding the product, but it's not like the core and the essence of what we do. We're like really a user-friendly way of defining calculations on data. That's it. So I think having that clear vision from the outset and having agreement among everyone makes it like it's not really ambiguous for us. I don't know how to generalize that to other companies. When I was at Tableau, I worked in consulting before I became a product manager. And it was just like very obvious that that was the value of Tableau as well as it enabled analysts to define business logic instead of relying on IT. And that's why, yeah, I always worked in the calculation team because I'm like, actually, the core value of Tableau is calculations, not the visualizations. The visualizations is just the marketing engine of the company. I think that's smart, too, if you hone in on that and look for that in your career, because I see a lot of product managers end up in companies or different like parts of the product that are not the core value proposition. And then they struggle to with what you were talking about, like defending the budget, right, not getting cut, being seen as valuable in those different areas. That's really hard, I think, if you're working on adjacent type things. Yes. And if I were to be truly honest, I would say like, so the project that I worked on on Tableau is the only surviving initiative like post Salesforce acquisition, like almost everything else has been like killed. Like if I'm being really honest with myself, it's not because my like budget defense skills were amazing. It's because I just happened to work in the area of the product that was the core. And so eventually the company like kind of converged on the fact that like, okay, this is our core value proposition. Let's invest in it. So that would be like my advice to product managers when you're picking a job is like, do the thing, do the core thing. Don't be in adjacency. And so don't just like pick a company, like pick a role within the company that's like intimately tied to the core value proposition. Like in all honesty, I didn't last very long at Muse. I was only there for 10 months, nine months, something like that. They're a hotel tech company and I was working in analytics. Like I was the most adjacent to the core mission of the company than anyone that was why I left. I was like, I'm not doing the thing. Like, why am I here? <laughs> That's a really good tip, I think, for people who are out there looking for it, what to do. And if they're in an adjacency or feeling like this is not working or I'm having trouble defending my budgets or I just don't feel like connected to actually like look for the core and, and try to transition. So when you came into, so when you joined Kawa, you were employee number 10, but not the first product manager. There was somebody else there, but you were hired in as a product leader and you work really closely with the founders still who are there. I know this is a tricky thing for a lot of product leaders, right? You've got founders. It's like, this is their baby. They have got a lot of stake in this. How do you make sure that you're still on the same page with the founders? How do you kind of navigate that as the first product leader in a small company? So I should tell the story of how I ended up in Calab. So I left Muse because I was in adjacency and I didn't have like a next thing. I didn't have like I looked around at other companies and there wasn't a company where I thought like, gee, I really want to join that. So in my period of like profound unemployment, I just declared myself a founder <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to build my own company. And I started doing a bunch of like market research, customer research to figure out like what problem am I solving in this like hypothetical company? And then I was just posting on LinkedIn every day about like my findings and my experiences. Usam, the CEO of Kawa, came across my post and he was like, hey, you're writing about my company. It already exists. We've been building this for a year and a half. Like we've got all this funding. We've got like a whole team and like half a million lines of code. Like what are you doing doing this on your own? Come join us. So I think I have a fairly unique experience in like 
I joined a company where I have like a very strong shared vision of with the founders. I haven't had the issues that other product leaders have where, you know, they're butting heads because they don't have a shared vision. So my advice is like, I think it's all about picking the right company and the right founder. And if you're in a situation where you are butting heads, like do something different because that's an insurmountable obstacle. It's kind of the way I would see it. So what do you do to like, I know you were writing about this on LinkedIn, which is amazing. So the founder could see your perspective on everything. What did you do when he called and like wanted to sit down and just go through, you know, your shared vision? How'd you make sure you were like aligned or, and I guess what are acceptable places to, I guess, to digress or have different ideas or say like, Hey, but what about this? So I actually thought he was crazy. (laughs) He was just describing the features that he built. Like he's a very technical guy. He's like, not a marketing oriented guy at all. This guy used to run an IT department in a bank. And I was like, what have you built? And he's like, I love my product. And I was like, everybody loves their product. That's not a selling point. You know, so after this conversation, he's like, let me give you a demo of the product. And I was like, sure, whatever. And then I was so convinced this guy was like off on one that I showed up like 20 minutes late for our meeting. I almost didn't go. And then like within five minutes of him demoing the product, I was like, oh my God, this man is a genius. I have worked with some of the best data UX people in the world at Tableau, like, and he has surpassed them. He has built the product that Tableau wishes it could build, but like never succeeded at. And it's because he has this like joint understanding of design and data. And that communication gap, like even with the 3000 people in Tableau, Like they never got there because the people who understand design don't understand data and the people who understand data don't understand design. So I was like, I don't care how many disagreements we have. Like I can work with you because you are like best in class, best in the world at data UX. I think if you have like enough of a pull in one direction, then you can overcome anything, like any disagreements. That's amazing. That's such a hard skill to find too. Like somebody who can do both the design pieces and the technical pieces when it comes to data. Like modeling data and visualizing it is such a tough skill. So, And he can manage people. Like he ran 600 person team at the largest bank in Europe. I was just like, how can so many skills exist in one person? It's just, it's outstanding. So it sounds like also respecting your founder very well (laughs) is helpful. If I could have like dreamt of a boss, I wouldn't have been able to dream up who's (laughs) that. Amazing. So definitely finding somebody that is awesome, somebody that you would want to follow into this type of work. That definitely sounds like a great trait. So you, again, employee number 10, walk in here, you've got one product manager and you come in as a chief product officer. In early stage companies, how do you think about diving in, getting your hands dirty, right? And then scaling the team for the future. And how do you make sure that you are doing things that will help scale rather than getting too sucked into the weeds? I guess this is somewhat repetitive of what I said before, but I truly believe that the most important product decision that ever gets made is like, who are the first customers that you onboard? And if you onboard the wrong customers who don't have like a very high overlapping shared problem set, it becomes impossible to scale the business because every customer is asking for different features and that has different problems. I really believe that getting the right set of customers on the platform with a shared overlapping problem 
is the way that you scale the business. That's my view for now. I don't have like a great long-term view of like this, what's our hiring plan in three years from now. There's just too many other burning problems to think about that. But I also think it takes a different leader at different stages of the company. And so it's not like beyond the pale that I would hire my replacement at some point because I'm definitely like a more of a pioneer than like an optimizer. So yeah, I don't know if I would be the right CPO for Cowell when it's like a multi-billion dollar company. I think I could be great as an individual contributor doing more like customer research at one point. So that's a potential opportunity in the future. I think you're bringing up a great point here too. Like no, like you said, the leaders at different stages are all different types of people. And I don't think people really recognize that because I've worked with a lot of companies before where somebody's been there from day one. They were you know, called the chief product officer because they were the first product manager. They were there from day one, maybe the second. And now the company is 500 people and they've got four different product lines and they're starting to scale. And then the problems and the challenges of that scale become different. It's not like figuring out who our customers are. It's about like building a team and like setting up operations and you know, working with the board to justify your actions and like make sure they can get budget and like fundraise. And I don't think a lot of people recognize how different it is to go from very early stage to go to scale up and then even enterprise, right? Where you got to be a political genius in right. some places. And <laughs> Which like, I am not. <laughs> it's like nice to hear you talk about that because I think a lot of people get to that point where you know, they grow up through this company and they love it and they don't want to leave it, but they also, they feel like by not being the chief product officer, right? When it hits that 1000 person mark, the 500 person mark that they failed, right? They see it as a failure instead of like a, just a different phase. Exactly. And I'm really glad to be on this podcast because I'm reaching an audience of my potential future bosses. <laughs> so, you know, anybody out there, who kind of works in product and data analytics, who's worked in massive companies, like, please reach out because I might want to hire you as my boss. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> I like that. It's so refreshing to hear somebody talk about that too. So with Kawas and with being a leader going through all of these, you know, different phases of thinking about who's our customer, what are we building? How do we focus on the core? I feel like I have to ask this and I keep asking a bunch of product leaders this. AI. Oh, Yay. Right. Like, like, I just feel like I have to, I have to approach it. So you've got all these wonderful things out there, AI, chat GPT, all of that stuff. How are you thinking about it? So we're thinking of it as like the future of user interfaces. And in a way, it's not that the user interface will go away. It's just that for 80% of the things you'll interact through a chat and then you'll still have the user interface for doing like more advanced configuration. That's the way that we're thinking about it is like an assistant that makes you not have to bear the burden of like feature overlord in a fairly complex product. So we are building a chat assistant. It can do like basic data mining and cleaning and analytics tasks. Like if you give it a list of countries, we can go out and like populate a new column that gives you the capital city of every country as an example just by like typing in natural language, like what are the capital cities of each of these countries? I think in the future, we'll want to integrate that with like the internal knowledge of the company, because with data, obviously, the questions that you answer are like more nuanced to each business. So that's kind of the way that we're thinking about it. Like our product isn't going to be an AI 
product, it's going to have an AI assistant. Okay. I like that. I feel like a lot of people got so thrown off with chat GPT going out there. I've heard companies be like, oh, we're stopping everything to go build this, you know, make it AI, just like slap an AI thing on it. And I've also observed so many companies just like straying from their core to focus all their attention on AI or put a feature out there with AI to like hit the buzzword so that they can like look exciting. Meanwhile, their core product sucks. Like it doesn't even work. And then they're getting distracted that way. How'd you guys sit down and actually come to an agreement and say like, like, was there a distraction at all? Were you all just like super level-headed about this? Or was anybody like, we have to do the AI thing? No, I think we were super level-headed about it. And we were kind of like, this is not our priority, but if we have time, we'll work on it. And then we had time and we've got some pretty kick-ass developers who just went out there and made it happen. So we're pretty shrewd in our prioritization, which left some the kind of free time for them to experiment with AI. But it's not like we're not out there selling an AI product at all. We don't even mention it unless people ask. It's so early and so adjacent to the core product. Cool. Very smart and rational. <laughs> <laughs> so for you, when you're thinking about, you know, next phases for Kawa and the startup on this growth trajectory, what are you excited for? I'm actually really excited about... I'll do the CPO thing until we have like a very clear ICP and like we've got funding, we've got customers, we've got runaway and it's just a matter of scaling. And then I really want to work on implementing growth strategies and, you know, using product as a distribution channel, because that's really then at the intersection of data and product. It's like, how do we use the data that we collect in the product to optimize our activation and our well, acquisition, activation, retention, and monetization. So I'm like following Leah Taran and Elena Verna, like religiously. I love everything that they're putting out there. When we have more data, I want to implement a lot of what they are preaching and have like real metrics to show for how like we did this in the product and this was the impact it had on the business. Cool. Really excited to watch that too. What's your advice for people who are considering going to an early stage startup? I actually have a bunch of HBS students who really want to be like number one product manager at a really early stage company. Because one, a lot of times I think they just think they're going to get a massive amount of equity and be the next like Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) That's definitely like a poll that I've seen on a lot of people who think if they get in, you know, early stage that's it. Like, you know, they'll just make a great exit and they'll, they'll be extremely rich. But a lot of them want to be like number one. What would you tell them to consider, you know, having seen all these different stages? I would say like, if your reason for wanting to be number one is to get a ton of equity, like you are in for a world of disappointment. So I'll tell you what I've done. I've set up my personal finances so that like if Cow totally crashes and burns, it has like no financial impact on me. So my husband is basically like this was a joint decision with him for me to join a startup. And he's kind of agreed to like take care of like the basic needs of us. And so like I'm not responsible for paying any bills. I have like total freedom to just like enjoy and like see where this goes. So I wouldn't bet your personal financial future on an early stage startup because You also don't behave in a rational way when your personal finances are so tied up in a company. So that's why I'm very happy my husband is, he's the safety net, as he calls himself. That's one thing. Two is like, if it's your first job, you have no experience. 
And that absence of experience is going to show up just in volumes inside of a startup. There's, you can't hide in a startup. Your weaknesses are going to be on display for everybody. And like the success of the business is going to like ride on you overcoming your weaknesses. Whereas in a larger company, you can kind of like play to your strengths. You can like kind of hide your weaknesses a little bit more and you can, you can hone them. Like there's more opportunity for learning. In an early stage startup, like nobody's going to train you. Like we have some junior people and like I don't have time to be like training them and doing career building. I'm like, I'm trying to make sure you get paid. <laughs> so that's what the senior people in the company are going to be thinking about is like, can I get you your next paycheck? Not like, how do I help you with your career progression? So I would say like, if you're fresh out of college, don't join an early stage startup. Go get experience somewhere and like set up your financial security so that you can then like take the risk later on without having such a huge impact on your personal life. I think that's extremely wise words for people out there listening. Thank you for sharing and thank you for being so honest about your journey. If people want to go follow you, learn more about you, where can they find you? Yeah, just connect with me on LinkedIn or you can send me an email at bethany at kawa.ai. Happy to chat with anyone. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, Bethany. It's been great having you on the Product Thinking Podcast. Thank you. For those of you listening, if you enjoyed this podcast, please hit subscribe to the Product Thinking Podcast so that you never miss an episode. Next Wednesday, we'll be back with another Dear Melissa, where I answer all of your questions about product management. There is no question too big or small. So go to dearmelissa.com and let me know what you're thinking. We'll see you next time.